Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. So I'm pleased to be joined by Maya Clark, who's a researcher with the Heritage Foundation focusing on industrial base issues. And she's written some really great reports recently on the Navy public shipyards. So that's what we're here to talk about today and broader industrial base issues. So Maya, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks for having me. Great. So can you just break down for us, you know, what shipyards does the Navy currently have available and and why are they important to uh, the Department of Defense? Yes, so the Navy currently has four public shipyards, one in Washington State, one in Pearl Harbor, one in Virginia, and one up in Maine. And those four shipyards are responsible for all of the maintenance of the nuclear fleet, so aircraft carriers and submarines. So naturally, those are very important. The Navy is looking to invest in you know, the new Columbia-class, continuing to purchase the Virginia-class submarine, the Ford-class carrier. But all of those great new technologies and great new assets are only as good as the shipyards that maintain them. So that's my pitch on why this is an important issue to care about. Yeah. And so those guys, those those four public shipyards, those are actually different than the the private shipyards, right? So can you talk a little bit about that difference? That's correct. Yeah. So ship maintenance is broken down between public and private shipyards, where private shipyards maintain non-nuclear surface ships. So all the destroyers, basically everything that's not a submarine or an aircraft carrier. And those yards are located all over the United States. There's really a separate process for scheduling and contracting surface ship maintenance. Nuclear ships are maintained by Navy-owned and operated Navy shipyards. And this division has existed for a while now. It is the result of is a legal requirement that the Navy can only spend so much money on privately contracted ship maintenance. And, you know, as a result of different choices over time, the end result now is that Navy shipyards do nuclear ship maintenance and private yards do surface ship maintenance. But there are exceptions to that. For example, the USS Boise and a few other submarines have been sent to private shipyards like General Dynamics Electric Boat and Huntington Ingalls Newport News for their maintenance periods. And that's beginning effort for the Navy to be taking some pressure off the shipyards that are really overburdened and also to kind of re-engage private shipyards in nuclear maintenance, which is different from nuclear submarine and ship building that those yards specialize in. Yeah. So the government-owned, government-operated kind of facilities, they do zero ship building. They only do the maintenance, right? Exactly. Only the maintenance and only submarines and aircraft carriers, which is a huge job, but is a separate kind of work from ship and submarine building. Is that requirement the same as like OMB circular A76 or something where it was like you have to do like 50-50 
maintenance in-house versus like with, with yes contractors. it's the 50 50 rule yeah so that's how they decide to split it do, do you know it does that have any kind of like legacy or history with like rickover like because rickover and his nuclear organization was so strong back then that's how they decided to do you know in-house with uh, the government in terms of nuclear you know i'm not certain how they decided the exact division i know that it really evolved over time and it has kind of been a question with the shipyard since their founding in you know the 1700s of which yards do which work and what's contracted to public shipyards there was kind of a consensus reach kind of the late 70s early 80s that it was more cost effective for government to do that nuclear maintenance and more cost effective for private industry to be the shipbuilders yeah, I can imagine all the uh, types of controls that would need to come down if <laughs> you had a lot of nuclear work yes. being done at the private shipyards. Exactly. That's a lot of uh, sensitive work, both technologically and also, you know, hazard materials. So it takes a certain kind of shipyard and a certain level of expertise to get that done. You're pointing out that like all the four public shipyards, they're over 100 years old now. And there's been a bunch of reports and like the GAO has been finding at some of these places, the average equipment age is, you know, 15 at Norfolk, it's 15 years past average, you know, life expectancy. So the capital equipment is getting pretty, pretty old. And that seems to be leading to a lot of maintenance delays potentially. And we've been seeing some of those reports that have been coming out. And, you know, just recently I saw an article where I think it was the CNO that was saying like, hey, ship maintenance delays have been like, 7,000 days lost a couple of years ago, and then we're bringing it down this year, and we're going to get to zero. <laughs> so can you just talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on with the maintenance delays and then how they're, how they're thinking about getting rid of those delays and getting ships out there on time? There are all kinds of delays happening with ship maintenance at our Navy shipyards. And the GAO actually put out a really great report with some data on this recently, and they found between 2015 and 2019, for aircraft carriers, there were 1,128 days of maintenance delay, and only eight of 18 carriers made it out of their maintenance availabilities on time. For submarines, the record was actually a lot worse. Only five of 33 made it out on time, and there is a total of 6,296 days of total maintenance delays among the submarines that went through maintenance. So this just illustrates a trend we've been seeing lately of these really long maintenance delays. And there are a lot of contributing causes to that. For starters, one is that the four shipyards are all over 100 years old. And when you think about that, it's not just a matter of, oh, they're really old. It's also a function of these shipyards being built for a completely different era of shipbuilding and ship repair. The most obvious is Norfolk Naval Shipyard was built in 1767. So before the United States as a country, we had Norfolk Naval Shipyard, uh, which at the time was a private yard, obviously. But, you know, it was built for an era of wooden ships and cloth sails. And now when you have these shipyards, that their facilities were primarily built during World War II. They're just a hodgepodge that's gradually evolved over 250 or so years for some of these yards for over 100 years for all of them. And they're not purpose-built for nuclear ship maintenance. So facilities are in inconvenient locations across the yard. Items have to travel sometimes miles in total during ship maintenance processes. And these all contribute maintenance delays. Another issue are personnel issues and just the trouble of getting 
the skilled labor required to complete this maintenance. And that's another thing that was highlighted in that GAO report recently, just that the Navy often underestimates how many laborers it will need to complete maintenance period, and then has to hire on workers with overtime in order to get the work completed. And this is just, you know, a constant problem that leads to constant delays in ship maintenance. So there's a whole host of problems contributing to the ultimate problem, which is that ships aren't getting out of the yard on time. Yeah, you guys had a really good webinar with uh, Diana Maurer, who was at the GAO, and she was saying some pretty startling things. She was saying there's like heavy use of these personnel in the production shops for welders, ship fitters, and overtime is as high as 45% on an ongoing basis, which, which seems crazy, right? Like that's a, that's a lot of overtime to be taking just for like your average worker. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, clearly that's not an effective way to get the work done. You want to be getting it done, you know, on a regular schedule and you don't want to make this sort of exception type policy the norm. And it, you know, raises the cost as well as increases the delays on those ships and submarines. With all the delays that have been kind of been, we've been seeing just currently with our ship structure, which is under 300, right? <laughs> I think we're, we're still under 300 ships. And then the Navy's talking about going up to 500, maybe even like 581 was, was a recent number I saw. You know, is that is that even feasible or like how are they going to get there in terms of maintenance, even if they could build those ships and man them? You know, that's that's a very good question. It's the million or rather more than a million dollar question of how the Navy is going to meet the challenges of great power competition and meet the requirements it and the Department of Defense is setting for itself. In a word, no, I don't think it's feasible to jump up. Obviously, it will take time to build up the Navy to you know, add these ships, add more submarines, et cetera. And that gives you time to then be working on your Navy shipyards. But for example, the Navy's plan to revitalize and optimize the shipyards, uh, the Shipyard Infrastructure Optimization Plan or the SIOP. It's a phenomenal plan. I'm happy to talk about that more in detail, but an issue with it is that it only would recover 67 of the 68 maintenance availabilities that the Navy predicts will be lost. So really, it's meeting the needs of the current fleet and not the future fleet. So if the Navy's best plan for the shipyards is to bring them up to the requirements of the current fleet that it itself says is too small they're going to need to think of an even bigger plan uh, to somehow increase maintenance capacity. And that's probably going to involve, you know, somehow recovering capacity that was lost in the post-Cold War era of BRAC base closures and shipyard closures. There were four shipyards closed during the 1990s, early 2000s. And the Navy's going to have to think about how they bring back some of that lost capacity. Yeah, with the PSYOP, the Navy's uh, shipbuilding infrastructure optimization plan. Can you just riff on that a little bit more? Are they like thinking about increasing the number of dry docks and like expanding capacity as well just to meet what we need now? Or, you know, like how is that going to work? Because I guess, you know, some of the, the worries here was that it looks like in 20 years, one third of all ship maintenance can't be done just due to lack of dry dock space. So can you just go into that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So the PSYOP is the Navy's plan to bring the shipyards into the 21st century. And it's really a systems engineering project on a massive scale 
never really seen in commercial shipbuilding or military depot level maintenance. It's just a very massive project and it attacks issues at the yards from three points. The first being the dry docks, the second being the facilities and the layout of facilities at the yards, and the third being capital equipment. So with the dry docks, we currently have 18 dry docks at our Navy shipyards, but eight of those are not able to meet the tasks that they need to do, whether that's because they're too small, in disrepair, many dry docks need to be super flooded, which is to say filled beyond their intended depth in order to float in submarines that are larger than the ships those dry docks used to service. Some need buoyancy assist. The only aircraft carrier dry dock on the West Coast is actually built on a fault line and is in danger of being basically sucked into a sinkhole if there's a big enough earthquake in Washington. So there's a whole host of problems with the dry docks, and the SIOP proposes remedies to all of those that would happen over the next 20 or 30 years. Then the facilities layout, the SIOP program office at the Navy has already started doing this, mapping all the processes and systems in the Navy shipyards using digital modeling and figuring out how to optimally place facilities in the yard to reduce travel time of objects and to improve workflows so that shipyard maintenance isn't planned around the facilities. The facilities are planned around ship maintenance. And then capital equipment, as you pointed out earlier, just so much of it, you know, cranes, machine tools, et cetera at shipyards is too old, is past its expected use life. And the plan just remedies that by buying new equipment. That one's a pretty straightforward solution. And so with all these changes, the Navy predicts that, well, first of all, the Navy explains in the plan that without any changes, 68 maintenance availabilities will be missed between now and 2040. With the changes proposed, they believe they'll recover 67 of those 68. You know, like we discussed, that's huge. That's a great accomplishment that, you know, is a big project. But recovering 67 of 68 of the current fleet doesn't really address the whole question of a growing Navy in an era of great power competition, having some latent excess capacity in case of conflict. All of those questions are unresolved by the PSYOP, I would say. Yeah, one of the things that really surprised me was that the Navy plans out maintenance 20 months in advance to when they're going to like schedule all these things. So they they have like this really long lead time. It's almost like procurement lead times in terms of just like getting a ship in there for maintenance. Will the PSYOP be able to like reduce that or is there a way that, you know, you can do it almost more on demand maintenance or is that the wrong question to be asking? I don't think that's as much of a concern. The thing with Especially with clear aircraft carriers and submarines, they have very precise life cycles where you know when you send a submarine off for the first time that, you know, in this many years, it's going to need to be refueled. In this many years, it'll no longer be certified for submerging, for diving, because, you know, obviously that's a huge safety issue. And there's so much pressure on a submarine when it submerges that it's a lot of engineering behind how many times it can submerge and come up again. And so because so much about these ships is so precise in itself, that kind of gives the Navy the ability to do that scheduling, which on the one hand, I think is helpful. 
on the other, it makes it even harder to understand why there are so many delays if supposedly, you know, these ships and submarines are easier to predict in their maintenance needs. And then, of course, none of this accounts for emergent work for, oh, no, this submarine has a surprise issue. We need to get it, you know, dry docked and repaired. The PSYOP doesn't really account for that. It does account for, you know, a dry dock needs to be scheduled to have a ship in it probably about 75% of the time. And that other 25% needs to be left for the possibility of emergent work and also for maintenance on the dock itself. So the PSYOP addresses it a little bit, but in my mind, in this era of change for the Navy and for United States national security strategy, et cetera, that's not quite enough wiggle room, I think. And that's why we need to get back to this question of how to recover that lost capacity that was gotten rid of in the post-Cold War era of thinking that, you know, we won't need this anymore. Well, you know, we might need it now. So, <laughs> Yeah, right. It seems like it's that, that weird kind of efficiency where you want to streamline things to exactly what you will need to the requirements that you can predict. Okay, well, you know, the Navy should be preparing for a warfighting scenario where there is high unpredictability. You not only need the surge capacity to deal with that, so that's a big capability itself, but also, <laughs> you know, the the ability to be more nimble and do things on a more ad hoc basis. It feels like it needs to be more ingrained in, into the culture so that when you flip that switch in terms of in, in terms of the geopolitical situation, then, you know, the, the Navy already has those muscle movements. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the GAO, with respect to the Navy PSYOP plan, has just been kind of talking about the Navy needs to coordinate better, plan better, use better analysis to kind of, you know, minimize costs and the like. And it seems like the PSYOP has just been basically underfunded. I've seen a couple articles where you know, the Navy's planning to ramp that up and they're not quite getting what they they asked for. And especially in the future years, the future years defense program, it's not clear that they're really going to be able to fulfill even what they asked for. So why is the issue rather than like all this, this kind of stuff that the GAO has been kind of talking about, why isn't it just fully fund the program and get the infrastructure and the capital equipment up to a place, you know, earlier rather than later? Well, there's a lot there, and there are a lot of issues just in general. And I think one really for the PSYOP is that, you know, this is a plan that's taking place over 30 years. And in some ways, it's addressing current problems, but in a lot of cases, it's addressing future problems that are coming down the line but aren't here yet. And when you have a project that's over a long term like that, and the payoff is not going to be immediate. The political win of getting it done is not going to be immediate and probably won't even be in your tenure. It's hard to get motivated to get it done. And I think that may be contributing to some of the issues. Another with the money side of it, which GAO pointed out, is that the cost estimates in the PSYOP are notional in large part because how much these projects will actually cost is based on what the Navy finds in doing this modeling process. And so they don't know until they've made the models what they're going to be really doing in the shipyards. So some of it they can know now, some of it they can't. But right off the bat, the PSYOP cost estimates did not account for inflation, which when you're looking at projects that are happening 15 or 20 years from now, it's pretty easy to just account for inflation. So basically, the concern is that the PSYOP 
lowballed the estimates on a lot of these projects. That will probably come up as an issue. And then, you know, it's just a massively expensive project. People disagree on how it should be done, whether it's enough. Some people see it as more of a priority than others. And, you know, with one thing and another, there's just a lot of concerns. And that I think is inevitable with a long project like this. But on the plus side, I think there is getting to be more of a consensus that this needs to be addressed. Uh, There certainly is a lot of interest in Congress on both sides of the aisle, especially for states and districts that have shipyards in their districts or neighboring states that provide a lot of the skilled workforce at those shipyards. They want to make sure that these shipyards have the people they need, have the tools they need, and whatever else they need to do their job. And there's also seems to be a good understanding in the Navy that this problem is coming soon. And it's something that's been put off for decades and now can't be put off any longer. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I don't think there's any way to know now whether it'll be a success or failure or if the plan will be changed or if this will be the official plan for the next 30 years or what. But it'll certainly be interesting to watch it play out. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the incentives are to kind of push money into modernization. You know, like we got the new frigates coming along and then the GAOs, or actually the CBO just came out with a report like, oh, it's going to be, you know, 20, 30% higher than what you're estimating. And so that's going to crowd out some budget. And then, you know, a lot of times it just seems like you want to get to, you have a force structure target, you want to get there. And then maintenance and sustainment, that's all kind of just like what one analyst has told me, he calls it like a pressure relief valve. So it's just like, well, I can only do so much with what you've given me. So your readiness is going to go down. The delays are going to go up. And so that just seems to be kind of like built into the political economy of how we do our acquisition. And maybe that makes sense. Like if you need to like really ramp up, the procurement takes a, has a longer lead time, but potentially if you have a bunch of these sitting around <laughs> that you can't maintain, you can throw more effort and you can quickly maintain them faster than you can build them. Yeah. And I think, you know, that pressure release valve has been utilized over the last 20 years or longer and has gotten us to this point. And now the shipyards have been so neglected, so underfunded and are so far behind that there's really a very limited ability to use that anymore as that pressure relief valve. They just need to be fixed. And I mean, at the moment, there is no dry dock in a Navy shipyard that can service the Ford class carrier. The two aircraft carrier dry docks that the Navy does have can fit the carrier. You can bring the carrier in and dock it, but they don't have the necessary utilities, the freshwater and saltwater pumps, uh, et cetera, that are needed to service those aircraft carriers. So you just get to this question. And another is, you know, the Block 5 Virginia class submarine, the latest iteration of the Virginia class submarine is larger and has a greater displacement than the previous ones. And so that means there are even fewer dry docks that are normally attack submarine dry docks that can fit the submarine. And, you know, we're just reaching this choke point of, you know, oh, our submarines and our aircraft carriers are getting newer and cooler, but our shipyards are staying the same. And now suddenly there's even less ability to service them than there was to service the Los Angeles class, for example. And so, you know, there's really no putting off this issue any longer because you build more ships and you're not going to be able to service them. 
you know, this whole issue, I guess for me and probably a lot of people, you know, when COVID came around and struck and we just saw a lot of the supply issues with respect to like, you know, personal protective equipment and ventilators and the supply chain issues still seem to be going on, you know, several months later, you know, it really makes you wonder as like a defensive observer, when we get to a crisis, uh, an emergency crisis situation, you know, one of these types of fat tailed events, I, I like to use Nassim Taleb's uh, framework there. What will you do when you have that? And you have to like sacrifice some efficiency in order to gain the risk management that comes with having excess capacity. And so I want to play a quick video for you and then get your kind of uh, reaction to it as a def defense industrial base expert here. Hi, I'm Eric Lofgren, defense industry researcher and host of the Acquisition Talk podcast. COVID-19 proved that the United States was industrially unprepared. Pre-pandemic N95 mass production stood at just 4% the peak requirements of 100 million per month. Production isn't expected to reach 70% of the requirement until January 2021, and that's for manufacturing a simple product. Speeding up the innovation process is perhaps more important, such as in the search for a vaccine. COVID has made clear the importance of industrial preparedness. Pandemics are a low probability, high impact event, sometimes called black swans. It's the government's job to prepare for systemic threats such as pandemics, global warming, and armed conflict. Total wars of the past were prolonged engagements, requiring great industrial mobilization. Prior to its entry in World War II, the United States had years to mobilize its industrial might. Deliveries of military aircraft expanded from roughly 1,000 a year to 20,000 before war was even declared. In future great power conflicts, the United States will not have the luxury of late entry. Moreover, a rapid end to future conflicts is increasingly unlikely with foreign advances in anti-access, area denial, electronic warfare, counter space systems, and hypersonic vehicles. The government can do two things to mitigate the impact of black swan events like pandemics and global conflict. First, fund critical materials and domestic industrial infrastructure as dedicated programs. The Pentagon should take a more active role managing the supply chain, building domestic sources for critical materials, and reducing lead times. Materials like rare earths, steel, and aluminum are the building blocks of the production sequence. There must be a combination of stockpiling and subsidization of mining and processing. Industrial facilities including lab equipment, advanced tooling, 3D printing, and test equipment should be funded directly. Funding the upstream production process will increase surge capacity, a crucial capability in itself. Upstream investment need not come at the expense of military platforms. Rather, it may decrease overall costs by helping to modularize and improve system design. Second, the government must continue adopting commercial practices. Studies have found that the added cost of doing business with the government is nearly 25%. This is likely an underestimate. By making the government an attractive buyer to dual-use firms, surge capacity and innovation will be greatly increased, allowing for a more vibrant, innovative, and responsive defense manufacturing and industrial base to emerge. To summarize, it is the responsibility of government to prepare the industrial base for low-probability, high-impact events. Effective mobilization to address national emergencies requires dedicated programs for critical materials and industrial capital, as well as the use of commercial practices to unlock 
industry's full potential. When I put that together, you know, and I was thinking about funding industrial uh, capital and infrastructure, PSYOP is definitely one of those things that I like to point to. The, the Army also has an organic industrial base that they have, they have a plan and they're trying to beef that up, but they don't really have a funding plan for that yet. And then there's just like a ton of other things that you can think about in terms of industrial capital and being able to, you know, fund that upstream process rather than just focusing kind of like on the weapon system end item and kind of hoping the supply chain and, and a lot of the, the rest of the, uh, the capital issues will, will fix themselves. So what do you, you think about that? I think it raises a lot of concerns that, you know, I share about the state of the defense industrial base as a whole. And, you know, I like your video and the fact that COVID has in some ways been a blessing for the Department of Defense, dare I say it, just in that it revealed a lot of the supply chain issues. You know, supply chain illumination is a tough thing for the Department of Defense. They often don't know where they have a fragile supplier down, you know, in the sixth or seventh tier of a major, you know, program or something. And then COVID happens and all of a sudden, you know, they know that this particular component made by this one and only supplier in this small business in one particular state is an issue because all of a sudden they can't make that part and an entire program is delayed. So that's a painful process, but that's a learning process, I think. And it demonstrates the need to be thinking critically, as you say, not just about programs, about acquisition and getting shiny, cool new stuff, but all of the back end of that and how we ensure that we can procure that item, we can increase production of that item if need be, and shield that as in some way or other from these black swan events. Yeah, yeah it's interesting that you framed it almost as like a blessing in disguise. It's a, it's a painful disguise, but I think you're right because it's starting to make like industrial mobilization cool again <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> it's like it's making people like have those hard conversations. And you're actually starting to see a lot of that now from like Congress coming out and they're they're using kind of like Buy American Act and they're framing that whole thing in terms of industrial mobilization and what would happen if we got into a real war where supplies of communication are, you know, shut down and we can't access Chinese or even like neighboring suppliers, uh, do, do you have, and I think that was also reflected in, you know, section 889 of the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, where they basically removing Chinese suppliers from the supply chain. So do you have any uh, viewpoints on the Buy American or the section 889? Yeah, absolutely. So I think while we consider different supply chain concerns for the Department of Defense, we need to be careful that we're actually looking at what the problems are and where they are, you know, across a very complicated ecosystem of suppliers, different projects, you know, these wildly complicated networks, you know, certain suppliers across different countries, you know, just keep in mind how vastly complex it is. And then when we look at something like a Buy American Amendment, it doesn't seem to take that into account. And in my mind, Buy American policies like that need to be targeted to specific vulnerabilities rather than made as sweeping requirements across the defense industry. There are a lot of allies who are involved in our 
defense industrial base. And having that relationship is a big part of the alliance that actually strengthens our national security by sharing that defense industrial relationship with these other countries. Some of the numbers in these Buy American policies are also really unrealistic. I think the one proposed in the House side would require in 2021 that we jump from a 50% requirement, which is the current requirement, to 75%. I mean, a 25% increase in Buy American requirements may not be possible for a lot of different companies and will take a huge amount of restructuring supply chains for uh, different end products. So in my mind, Congress is in the right headspace when they are worried about supply chains and want to address those issues. But I don't think that Buy American requirements are the best way forward on that. And I think there needs to be much better consideration of where issues actually exist in the supply chains, which will take visibility into supply chains, which is very difficult uh, in a lot of cases. But once you have that visibility, you can actually address the problems that are there rather than institute a sweeping requirement that'll have a lot greater costs and may not really deliver the benefits that we're looking for. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, after FY21, they want to increase it like 5% a year until it gets to 100%, right? Right. The eventual goal is 100%, which again is probably not possible for certain programs or will just vastly increase the expense. You know, labor in the United States is more expensive than it is in other countries, et cetera. And, you know, there has to be, I think, more of a discussion about priorities before that decision is just made. So, you know, the 100% eventual requirement is crazy, but also that 25% jump in a year is quite crazy, (laughs) I think. Yeah, I hear you. (laughs) You know, I guess as what, what, what we were talking about, with the Navy PSYOP plan and then other types of things like that, I guess that's the more targeted thing, right? Like, you know, go in, find your vulnerabilities, and then specifically kind of address those through dedicated programs or, or the like. And then you can kind of start addressing it there rather than it seems like the Buy American is just like, okay, we're going to enact this. And then it's going to be up to these suppliers somewhere in the chain. They're going to have to know who they're buying from. And then they're going to have to find those new sources. And of course, you know, if the American firms or, you know, some of our allies are still in that, right? But if these firms were, you know, in that space already, they were not, they're not competitive today. So that means prices have to rise and they're still going to be fragile, right? So would they break in terms of if we need the surge? So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you in terms of just needing to think about infrastructure and capital as kind of like programs in of themselves. And you said one of the big issues was, you know, just insight. And that's something when I was at the Pentagon, just like was always a headache. Everyone always wanted to know, like, what's going on below supply tier number two, <laughs> right? I got good visibility yes. into the primes, but what's going on below that? No one really knows. And um, you've written a little bit about the trusted capital marketplace. Do you see that yes. as being one of the things that will provide insight? Because earlier it seemed like the initial standup was mostly provide capital to emerging tech. And that, and then it seemed to shift a little bit over time to where it was more about like finding these supply gaps, filling them, and you know trying to weed out China from that. So, so what's what's your view on uh, TCM, Trusted Capital Marketplace, as like this insight tool into the into the defense industrial base? You know that's interesting. I think it 
could begin to serve that purpose, but there's a limit there. You know, the trusted capital marketplace is, you know, awesome. It brings together, you know, trusted capital, you know, investors in who are vetted by the government to invest in, you know, sensitive technologies that are of interest to DOD. And then, you know, brings those people together, like you say, with those small businesses and often, you know, tech startups that have those technologies. I think having that program and having it exist as a way to sort of keep China out will end up illuminating these places where China's trying to get in. And uh, it will at least create supply chains where DOD has been involved since, you know, early on in those companies' development. And so as a result, knows that they're safe. It's when you get to these programs where, like you pointed out, the Pentagon can see the prime and maybe a level below the prime. And the prime contractor can see the first tier, maybe the second tier, might tell the Pentagon that it can see the whole supply chain, but in many cases cannot. And each tier puts it on the tier below to know and understand the supply chain that supports it. And so it just you know passes the buck down the entire supply chain so that at the top, you're not really understanding what's at the bottom. I'm not sure that trusted capital marketplace can address that issue, but it certainly provides you know, a window of opportunity to have new and more secure supply chains. Have you been seeing some movement on TCM by any chance? Because it seems like I've heard some things about it and they're kind of partnering with Ensign and, you know, AFWorks and some of that, but like, I haven't really heard much out of it. Do you think it's it's still viable? What's going yeah, on? I believe it's still viable. And, you know, in my mind, it's a good idea. So it should stick together. One issue really is that, you know, at its inception, it would it would throw together these venture days where you're getting everyone together in a room. And, you know, in the era of COVID, we're not all getting together in a room at this point. So they're having these virtual events, but I know situations are so volatile right now. I can imagine that in some ways the world is so unpredictable that these venture days have kind of taken a backseat. I think maybe as the situation with COVID either plateaus or resolves or, you know, evolves in some way, maybe that will come more into prominence. But I can't imagine that, you know, kicking off a project like that just a few months before coronavirus kind of puts a damper on the whole thing. So we'll see where it goes. You know, back to, you know, plugging the gaps in the supply chain and the like, seems like we want there to be surge capacity in the supply chain. And you know, you're kind of focusing on the Navy public shipyards. And then there's also, you know, private capital that might need to be beefed up, but that seems a little bit more difficult because you're kind of picking winners and losers. You know, how do you think about that in terms of should there just be more organic in-house type of supply chain support in terms of just whether that's just doing maintenance, kind of like what the shipyards are doing, or even, you know, supporting big capital equipment, 3D printing, you know, machine tools, test equipment, lab equipment, these types of things that would help out on the R&D or the procurement side. Do you think the, the government should have a bigger role there? Or, you know, is that mostly in the maintenance side? Or how do you think about plugging those supply gaps? You know, it's tough to say. And 
I think, again, this is an issue where you don't want to have a sweeping declaration of, yes, you know, we should grow the organic industrial base, the military should own and operate more of its industrial base, etc. You want to look at specific instances where the government might take a better role, might take a larger role, and go from there. So, for example, you know, I think it's important that with our Navy organic industrial base, with our shipyards, we continue to prioritize those, have those full functioning, you know, they do these certain tasks that, you know, nuclear refueling, et cetera, that it's good that the Navy is doing those tasks. But there's certainly room for looking to private industry, looking to have them involved in different ways. And it's tough to say how exactly that should be divided. I think there can be a role for government. But again, we always have to remember that. And of course, I'm saying this as a scholar at the Heritage Foundation, and we believe very firmly in the free market. And I think the free market is what allows us to have a strong national defense, allows us to have the innovation we need to remain safe. And we never want to be cavalier about increasing the government's role when the private sector can do a good job. I'm a huge believer in, in the market as well. And so I'm totally with you there. I guess some of my like concern or I guess pushback is within the Department of Defense, you'll never get to like a perfect market economy. And I mean, that's most people understand that. But like even with like these uh, big infrastructure programs, the government signs off on them, right? Like before a shipbuilder does some big uh, capital investment, well, all that all that capital and all that infrastructure is coming back to the government through overhead rates. They justify that through the forward pricing rate process. And then when they do big new things, they still have to kind of go through government approval and all that just to make sure that everyone's on the same page. And, you know, Rick Over's idea back in the day, and I disagree with Rick Over on a lot of this stuff, actually, but but his whole thing was like, everything should be GOCO. You know, everything should be government owned, mm-hmm. like capital infrastructure, but then contractor operated so that you can have a little bit more control. So I always think like in the government, like does a larger in-house role give the government more technical knowledge such that it can contract on a commercial basis better? And actually like that whole thing turns out to be more market-like if the government like competes with itself, it's not like this big one monolithic decision organization, you know, it has a little bit more of that capacity to make decisions in-house. I don't know, what's your reaction to that? You know, that's interesting. And the tough thing with these issues is that, you know, not only are there a million different ways that it's been done in the past, but there's also always room for innovation. So it's hard to talk about the government's role versus the private sector's role when those are so intertwined. You know, I I defer to people with more expertise than me to say what the best way forward is, but I'm certainly interested to see those new ways of doing things that I know will emerge and keep an eye out for those that are successful and those that are not and, you know, try to go from there and come up with the best way to do business at the Department of Defense. Yeah, I guess that's the ultimate market structure way in the Department of Defense, like actually allow some experimentation, filter out the bad and grow the good. And one of the things that I, I think about, again, like, see if you, you have anything to say on this one. I think, you know, maybe one of the innovations is those, and the government's been doing shared services for a long time, but maybe it, like, whether that's in-house or it just funds a company to go do this, right, creates shared services in terms of that capital equipment, advanced tooling, lab equipment. And you start, you're starting to see a lot of this in terms of, like, the, the private sector, because, like, if you're a startup or you're a new guy, you want to compete, you can't just go ahead, I got 
you know, two million dollar funding round, and I can't put one million dollars of that into like a single piece of lab equipment or something to go do what I need. So, like, dramatically lowering those barriers through like the government, you know, potentially funding like a whole host of these types of companies in the middle, and then it would seem like the more that, and it's not, it's not just through shared services, but the more that you kind of fund that upstream production, capital, infrastructure, you know, materials, all that kind of stuff. You know, the lower it should be your back end costs, right? It, maybe it seems like shipbuilding costs have just been going up because back in the day, a lot of that cost was kind of hidden through other types of programs where it wasn't all direct on the shipbuilding contract. It was actually, you know, a lot of that was funded elsewhere through other kind of capital investments. You know, again, there's all this room for innovation, new ways for doing things. What you say makes a lot of sense to me, and it would be interesting to see how that applies. And I think, you know, DOD is going to have to be innovative as they try to stay on top of and stay ahead of all of these latest technologies. You know, you can't keep doing business the same old DOD way and, you know, stay abreast of all the technologies coming out of Silicon Valley and other innovation hubs in the U.S. and the world, you know. Remains to be seen how they'll address this, whether they'll address it. But I think, you know, Undersecretary Ellen Lord is, you know, she's coming up with cool ways of approaching these things and, you know, trying to increase that flexibility. And I think those are changes for the better. And we'll see if, you know, other changes like those you propose come to fruition. Yeah, leadership in DOD these past few years has seemed to be pretty tremendous. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can kind of keep that, that caliber going forward because like these guys just can't be here forever, right? So so I'll be yeah. interested to see who's the next the next leader is kind of like taking the torch. So we're, we're coming up on time here. I just wanted to uh, ask you, what's next for you? Like what are some burning questions or what are you looking into now? Like what's interesting you? You know, it's funny that you shifted the conversation towards supply chains because that really is kind of the topic I'm interested in now and am focused on and looking at that in kind of three directions. First of all, supply chain visibility. How do we see into our supply chains? How do we understand them better than we do? How do we change that end of the problem so that you can be proactive rather than reactive about vulnerabilities in those supply chains? Two, there are all kinds of vulnerabilities in our supply chains. And, you know, there's a lot of focus on reshoring right now on by American proposals, et cetera. But foreign source and foreign based supply chains is only one of many issues. We have these single and sole source suppliers, fragile suppliers. You know, you end up with a part for a submarine that's only made by one company in, you know, Missouri. And it's a small business that does all their accounting on paper. I mean, this is a made up example, of course, but I mean, there are a million issues and we don't just need to be worried about China and our supply chains. We need to be worried about the places where our supply chains have these gaps and these fragilities that are of just as much concern to national security. And then thirdly, once we see our supply chains, understand the weaknesses, where do we go from there? What policies are good policies? What policies are too involved? What policies are too hands off? You know, and how do we come up with a way to address supply chain issues, both holistically and in a targeted way. So that's where my head's at. I'm excited to talk with people around the city because there's a whole lot of expertise around here and see what we can find. 
Well, that seems like those three things are, I think, an important research agenda. With this, the fragile ones, we just had a, a thing with uh, Mike Petters at HII at George Mason, and he was saying 80% of the submarine supply chain is sole source. I was like, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, when, when, you, when I hear that and when I heard you talk about that, I was just like, okay, yeah, the Buy American, you know, you're, you're kind of hitting the edges there, but are you getting to the crux of the problem? Because like, who are these companies that are going to want to fill the gap, right? When right. It, it doesn't seem to make business sense a lot of times, you have to do the cost accounting standards and all this other stuff to kind of get in. And, you know, I guess that's just one of the questions there. Right. No, exactly. I mean, again, the conversation right now is focused on and is interested in, you know, the foreign-based supply chains and that concern. And that absolutely is a concern. But I mean, goodness gracious, the domestic supply chain is not in a great shape either in a lot of these cases. And, you know, I think kind of the biggest issue with supply chains is really helping people to scope the problem. And in some ways, you need to encourage policymakers to address the issue, but you also need to encourage them to wait a minute, take a step back. And before you make a policy about this, Make sure that you understand the depth and width of the problem, because as you point out, a Buy American policy is not going to correct the fact that 80% of, you know, the submarine supply chain is sole source suppliers. And, you know, it's it's a big question and I'm at the front end of my research. So there's certainly a lot to dig into here, but we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I think with the, the coronavirus, it became one of those issues of all these types of people decide, like the market kicked in, right? All these people were trying to like give you PPE and ventilators and a lot of them were domestic sources but then where did that actually come from and then they didn't have the past performance and the government couldn't contract with them or they just the government like when I was reading World War II history about this there was like well the contracting officials they want to go to like the big guys like the GMs of the world because they know they'll execute or if they don't execute it's not their fault for taking a risk on some on some guy so one of it's just like how do we get the the whole thing to be more flexible so that we can take advantage of these markets, the market's ability to adapt really quickly and, and show, you know, progress and show and, and put out, you know, new components where, when it's needed. Right. I'm wondering, because I had a, a podcast with uh, a blockchain uh, CEO, do you think blockchain's part of this like, in terms of insight or, or, you know, we've been trying to get insight into the supply chain forever and people seem to have just been failing. So, so is blockchain part of this solution? Have you been thinking about that or, or where's your head there? You know, funnily enough, I've been thinking about that since I listened to that episode of your podcast uh, (laughs) on blockchain and that I've got to be honest, I'm not a computer scientist. I think we need to find that great fusion of policy experts who are also computer scientists because there's not enough computer scientists and there's also not enough of them who are interested in the policy side. But I'm intrigued by that. I think that there's potential there. And I do think it's just so much data, so much information that has to be managed It's not going in an Excel spreadsheet. We need to figure out how to manage that. And luckily, we're entering this era where data management is looking a lot different than it did 15 years ago. And I'm intrigued by all of that. I'm excited to learn a little more about computer science than I currently know and uh, become more of an expert on blockchain because to me, that's where there's potential to solve this problem in a way that's not going to be massively expensive. And it might still be massively expensive, but that remains to be. Seen. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Transformation's hard, but I think that's a great place to stop. Maya Clark, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks for having me. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, 
interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.